Friends, we're going to continue our study in the study of Christmas and understanding the Christ of Christmas. Who is it that we worship? Last week, we firmly established that the Bible clearly teaches that the Jesus of the manger is the God of creation. He is the God who rules. He will one day be the God who judges. But friends, when we worship the babe, let's not forget that we worship him as God. Let's pray together and we'll continue on seemingly undoing everything we did last week. Let's pray. God, meet with us here today. Teach us from your word, Spirit of God, apply this very personally in our lives. God, we come to you today because you are a great God, and only a God as great as yourself could meet the needs of all of these people here today, needs that are as different as our faces are, God. We submit our life to you. We offer to you, God, the struggles that we have in this life. Give us the ability to make it through, God, or bring deliverance, whichever is best for us and brings glory to you. God, provide for the needs that are accounted for in this room. And be glorified in our time here together. God, may we leave this place different than the way that we walked in. It is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week again. We clearly discovered in the Scripture the teaching that Jesus is God, but this morning we are to discover this, that the Jesus of the manger was also a man, humanity. He said, how is it possible that he could be a God or a man? Which is it, Dave? And the answer is both. And what we will discover today is that throughout the New Testament, the evidence of Jesus' humanity is everywhere. So we want to be careful, however, to not put God in a box and say this, God can't be both God and man. I mean, I don't understand it, so it couldn't possibly be true. I mean, God can be both here and there, and I can't be both here and there, so it can't possibly be true. But we need to remind ourselves that we are not God, and He is. And it is one of the very many reasons that we worship Him, because He is amazing, because He is awesome. And we ought to reserve a word or two just for Him, to celebrate Him. So what does it mean that God is, that Jesus is also a man? The doctrine of the humanity of Christ is important as the doctrine of the the deity of Christ, it is essentially important that we understand all that we can about Jesus. And the Bible clearly teaches that he is God, but he is also man. And in our understanding of this doctrine, we must understand this, that Jesus is not part God, part man, a mixture of the two in some way, this unique creation. He is both God and man and not a mixture of them both. Doctrine that uh, some of I look around the eyebrows, I remember that from theology class. Yeah, that little conversation there. But friends, he is the God-man. 
He is fully God and he is fully man. Jesus, how was this possible? Jesus added humanity to himself. John, uh, the gospel writer in chapter 1 of his gospel, uh, said in verse 14 that he became flesh, dwelt among us. He tabernacled, he pitched his tent and lived with us. An incarnation. Think about that word incarnation. It, it seems like one of those doctrinal words, but it sounds a lot like chili. Chili con carne <laughs> means chili with flesh. We're talking about Jesus con carne with flesh. He became man. Not a look-alike, not a pretend, but 100% humanity. Not part God, part man. He added humanity to himself, and he is fully God and fully man. I know, that's hard to wrap your mind around. It's one of those great things about worshiping God, is we can be in awe, even if we don't get it. But the Bible clearly teaches it, and we're going to see that here. And not only does the Bible teach it, you go all over the place and you see evidence of people's faith in it, even from the very first century. I wonder if you got one of these on the back of your car. See one of those? It looks a lot like this. You ever see one of those? Yeah? How many of you got one on your car? How many of you have a clue what it even means? <laughs> yes, there might be a few random hands here and there. This is a doctrinal statement. It doesn't mean I prefer fish over chicken, okay? I mean, in a world where there are plenty of options, my friends, in the first century when there was all kinds of persecution, this became a visual doctrinal statement. The Greek word for fish is ichthus. Say that with me, ichthus. If you don't like fish, you can call it ichthus, okay? All right, and... Uh, and this is the word here for this, this symbol, okay? It means fish. My dad had a fishing boat. I told him about this. I was studying Greek. I learned all about this. And he says, that's what we should name the boat. So we did. Ichthus. It's all about the fish, okay? But you know what? Each one of the letters in this word, ichthus, stand for or explain a doctrinal statement. I want to show it to you here. The letter uh, Ioda is from the, uh, it begins the word Iesus, which means Jesus. So when you're thinking ichthus, that Ioda in ichthus, or the I, stands for Jesus, Iesus. It is Jesus. And then, of course, we have the uh, key. And by the way, a little uh, reminder here, when uh, the stores are writing about Xmas and everything, just see that as a Greek letter key standing for Christ, okay? And it stands for Christos, which means Christ. So already we have Jesus Christ, and that sounds like a good statement so far. Then we have the Theta, Theos, meaning God, Jesus Christ, he is God. Next letter. The upsilon from huihas, it means son. Jesus Christ, God's son in the sigma from soter means savior. Jesus Christ, God's son, savior. 
This is not a symbol or a poster they put on their door in their dorm room, friends. When they would come across someone that they thought might be a Christian, somebody would begin by drawing the top part. No, don't go there yet. (laughs) I'm going to talk about my new gang later, okay? The, The big swirl, then somebody would finish it. And it would present a doctrinal statement. Do you see how that works? Maybe in the dirt, the first uh, swerve, and then you come up and you finish it. It was just a way to communicate. I have my faith in Jesus Christ, who is God's Son and our Savior. Now, I know that uh, some of you, maybe you thought the way I did before I had learned this, that, you know, well, Jesus told us to be fisher of men, and Jesus and his disciples ate fish, so we should eat fish. (laughs) But it certainly has a deeper meaning than that. Jesus Christ, God's Son, and the Savior of the world. Doctrinal statements. What is it we believe about Jesus? Everybody like this. Come on, everybody go like that. If it hurts, you don't have to do it, all right? Now, let's, you're all initiated in my gang of these guys. All right, these are early church fathers. You see their little gang symbol here, you know? Come on, everybody go like that. <laughs> it's an odd-looking thing, and it looks like it belongs on Star Trek. Am I right? Yeah. But you know what? All these church fathers did this, and you know what that signifies? The two natures of Christ. He is God and he is man. From the very beginning, this doctrine was taught, it was known, it was believed, it was clear. He is the God-man. You don't have to do that the rest of the morning, but if you want to, go ahead. (laughs) But friends, by the time you walk out of here, I want this ingrained. Jesus is the God-man. And we're going to talk about why that matters why that's important here. But why does it matter? I mean, as long as we're on the, on that train here, hmm, got a new device here. Hopefully we can get it to work. There we go. All right. What does it mean? The scripture teach the humanity of Jesus. However, however, a bit of warning here, just by way of warning, while it teaches that the scriptures teach that Jesus is a man, it, it, it does not teach that he was a sinful man like you and I. He was without sin and had no fallen nature. No fallen nature. We looked at these illustrations, even from the early church early on. He is God, he is man. And why does it matter? Why does it matter? If Jesus was not a real man, then the death was an illusion. I mean, if, if, if the God who came to dwell among us only did so in appearance, then his death for your sin was an illusion. If he was not, did not take on humanity to himself. And Jesus had to become a man in order to die for all mankind. This is taught in the Old Testament in ways that when I mention it, it seems that people all over the auditorium will go, oh, that's such a great book. Oh, my goodness. And it is. It's from the book of Ruth. And there is a concept in here that shadows 
who Jesus is and why he takes on or adds humanity to himself. It is the book of Ruth, and we're talking about Boaz, who is the kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer. That concept in the Older Testament was for those who were in a bad way, and that was certainly Ruth. Ruth had no family. She had no husband. She was alone, and she needed someone to take care of her, to care for her. And the only one that could do it was a close family member. They had to be related. Do you see the picture here? In order for Jesus to die for all of mankind, he needed to be a man, a representative on that cross. But to die for all of man's sin, the God-man. The plan for your redemption, the plan for our reconciliation to God included Jesus taking on flesh, being the representative of all humanity and the God who died in our place. So it is essential in the plan of God that Jesus take on humanity. Hmm. So he is the kinsman redeemer. He is the one who became close to us, our family member, our relative, someone who could represent us. The God man. So, what's the evidence for this? I mean, well, you, that, that sounds like a great theory and it sounds like a bunch of theological stuff, Pastor Dave, but give me the Bible on it. Great question. Did you know that uh, 1 John was written specifically to defend the humanity of Jesus? It was written to dispel the doctrinal error that denies the true humanity of Christ. I mean, if you were to turn to 1 John and at verse 1, it begins this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, not a spirit invisibly moving, not some power or essence moving throughout the world, but we saw him, we looked upon him, and we touched him with our hands. The whole point is that Jesus saying he is real. He's not a spirit. He is, he is the God-man. And then John says, the light that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And so evidence, number one, I give you 1 John, written to defend the humanity of God. Clearly, the deity of Christ is everywhere. But what about his humanity? Well, evidence one is 1 John. Evidence uh, number two is the fact that he was born. Remember that whole Christmas thing? You know, Mary and Joseph traveling, trying to get to... uh, a Bethlehem, you know, that whole taxation thing that caused them to go back to their, the city of their birth. Ironically or providentially, that was the place where the Messiah was to be born. And sure enough, they get there and there's no room for an inn, but a baby is born. It's not a puppy, it's not a goat, it's not a bird, it's a baby. The fact that a baby was born 
is evidence of the humanity of Jesus. He did not just appear somewhere and walk into town and say, I'm here. He came into this place like you and I, born. The very fact that Jesus was born evidences he was a man. He had a real body. He had a real body. People looked at it. They touched it. John says we, we looked and we beheld and we held on to. And, and John could further say, and I leaned against him when we ate at the table. And, 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 and he, he was just like us. But he was God. And so that which is from the beginning which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, John says, he's the real deal. But you know what? He wasn't just born. He grew and matured just like you and I. And is it not in the wisdom of God and the wonder of God to, to include a little story like this in the Gospel of John, a little picture of Jesus growing up. It's found in Luke chapter 2 and verse 41. You may recall, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning the boy. Uh, but the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. And all parents said, yeah, I've had that happen. It's a horrible experience. You're terrified that the worst thing happened to him. And if it didn't, you're going to kill him when you find him. It's a sadness, anger all wrapped into everything, you know. And after three days, <laughs> they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw them, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? I mean, behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Which is not the way I said it to my kids. And they said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to him. And they went down with him, came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. He learned to obey his parents, just like you and I. It wasn't always easy, difficult to understand at times why we should do it that way. But Jesus learned to obey. But at the end of this little section here in verse 52, we get a little progress report on how Jesus is doing, having taken on humanity to himself. And we read, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, spiritually, now here physically, he increased in stature and in favor with God and man. Little Jesus was growing up in his experience as a human, he was growing. That's the picture of humanity, my friends. It's not the only evidence we have, but it sure is good evidence of the humanness of Jesus. But it doesn't end there. Jesus also endured the struggles of being a man. He knew hunger in Matthew chapter 4, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
40 days of fasting, he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted. I mean, if this guy is going to be the Messiah, if he's going to be qualified to be the Savior of the world, we need to find out what kind of person he is. And the temptations come, and he swats them away one after another. But he had not eaten for 40 days, and he was hungry. And you know what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about, you know, somewhere around dinner time when your stomach's juices are starting to move around because they normally get fed around that time. I'm talking about when you start to shake. I'm talking about where you're like, I got to eat something. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know. I got to get something in me, some sugars. Anybody got a candy bar, a gumdrop, something out there? Hunger. That is a human experience, my friends. He was hungry. But it wasn't just that he was hungry. It wasn't just that he was hungry. He knew what it meant to be tired, to be weary. In John chapter 4, we read about uh, Jesus in his conversation with a Samaritan woman. And that, that little section begins with, uh, and Jesus went through, and he must need go through Samaria, and he walked everywhere, didn't have a bicycle for heaven's sakes, you know? He and his disciples walked from town to town. And the, the Scriptures tell us there that he was tired. He grew weary from all of this. And you know what it's like, you know? You want to sit down, you get up, and your knees start popping, Uh, If you sit down, you know, you'll never get up again because you're just spent. Friends, it's the mark of humanity. As a man, he knew what it was like to hunger. We certainly know from the cross he knew what it was to thirst. And here in John chapter 4, we know that he grew weary. He grew tired. And as we've already mentioned in Matthew 4, he faced temptation. Day after day, seems that uh, Satan threw all kinds of stuff at him. Feeling a little hungry, Jesus? How about some hot bread, maybe with some butter? You know, you're God, so how about turn those stones into a loaf of bread? I mean, you know, the kind you really like, that tastes so good. A thought could have done it. A mere thought could have changed those stones into bread. And he said no. In his most vulnerable place, with all of the suffering that would be before him and the insults that would be hurled at him, just go ahead and get on your knees and I'll take you to the top. Give you all of the kingdoms of the world. And he said, no. You think you know something about temptation? I'll tell you what, so did Jesus. And the temptation that was thrown at Jesus is the kind of temptation that you and I face every single day. He endured the struggles of being a man. He also expressed some human emotions. And perhaps one of the saddest chapters in all of Scripture is John chapter 11. Jesus gets news that his friend Lazarus is sick. Jesus had real relationships with people like he does today. But he was delayed. And when he got there, 
he had heard that his friend Lazarus had died. And in the shortest, deepest verse of all Scripture, John 11 and verse 36, we read these two words. Jesus wept. You know the sadness, and you know what brings it. It's already in your mind now that we've talked about it. The loss of a friend, a a spouse, parent, child. And you feel it right there. And it's not because you're, I don't know what it is. Adrenal guy, physically, I don't know what happens. But there's an actual hurt feeling of sadness that overwhelms you. Jesus knew what that's like. And it's not because of observation. You know, I've watched these humans and how they respond to such things, and now I think I've fully come to comprehend. No, he experienced it. The sadness. The hopeless feeling that comes when someone you love is gone. Jesus knew it. He endured the struggles of being man. He expressed human emotions sadness for a friend who had gone. And in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, we see that he had compassion. Jesus went through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That compassion, the ability to feel what other people are feeling is a human emotion, is a human experience. Jesus knew it. Another shooting. I wonder, in hearing that, did you take a moment to think what that would be like if someone burst into your school or in your, your office, your workplace, Start shooting the kinds of things that goes through somebody's mind. What about my kids? What if I don't get out of here? My husband. And Jesus knew it. And he looked and he saw, like you and I could never see, but certainly in the same way, the compassion he had for the suffering of others is real. Compassion. You know what else? He experienced anger. In uh, Mark chapter 3, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Such evil, such hate in their heart. Here Jesus is that can relieve this man of the suffering, the humiliation. And they look at him as nothing more than a trap to be set. Hmm. Jesus said to him, he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save a life and kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. Just as you could imagine, how could you treat people the way you treat them? As nothing but tools to get what you want. You've known anger. You seethe. Your little neck things do that, whatever those are, and set your jaw. 
because he saw what was going on around him. He knew anger. All of these human emotions, certainly shared with God's, the God the Father, certainly the Spirit of God, not reserved just for a man, but certainly as a man, Jesus knew what it was like. And so what is the evidence here? The fact that First uh, John lays out an argument for the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was born, real body. He bled real blood, experienced real pain. He endured the struggles of being a man, and he expressed human emotions. But he also had human names. Did you know that? Yeah. He was referred to as the son of David. The fact of the word son is reserved for relational. Son of David. Speaks of his lineage, part of a human family. The son of David. But it also speaks of a dynasty. Born to be king. The right to rule. Son of David. A human father. Descendants. Luke begins with that genealogy tracing back a family earthly line. Matthew includes the very same. So he had a human lineage. But you know his favorite title was the Son of Man. Jesus oft referred to himself as the Son of Man. It emphasized his humanity. And for those who knew, it was a reference to the book of Daniel, a prophecy. A prophecy in which he was claiming a very exalted role in the history of redemption. The fulfilled prophecy, the Son of Man. And perhaps the last piece of evidence, and the one that seals it, is he died. Jesus died. Real tears in the garden. Real blood flowing from his side. Real pain as they whipped him and tore open his flesh. Real blood and water as they thrust that spear into his side. And he died. Jesus is the God-man The truth of the humanity of Jesus is demonstrated as we have seen in his birth, throughout his life, and in his death. But here's the good news, friends. Here's why it matters. Here's how we put such truths into practice. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 we are reminded that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have a high priest. Jesus in heaven praying for us today. God, I don't understand. Father, I, I don't know why they're worried so much. I don't know why this thing, man, what, what this pain thing is all about. Whatever it is you talk to Jesus about, he knows it. He understands it. And likely he experienced it. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 
And so here's the application. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Friends, because Jesus understands us, we should go confidently to him in prayer to seek help, to seek mercy, to find grace when we need it. His humanity was not just as a sacrifice for us, but preparation to be a great high priest to us. Great high priest. We have a Savior who understands our condition, a high priest who understands our condition, but we also have a Savior who humbled himself to reconcile us back to God. He left the glories of heaven, took the form of a servant, suffered, bled, and died for us, my friends. That is the Jesus of Christmas.